Nurses Who Led the Way Settlement Nurse Lillian Wald Favy, Lillian's clear voice rang out, and she clasped her hands in joy. Do you like it? her grandfather asked, beaming at her fondly. But one look at her face had told him that. It's the most wonderful dollhouse in the whole wide world, oh, Favy! And she flung her arms around his neck. You are so good to me. Favy, that was the Wald's children's name for their grandfather Schwartz said look inside she darted through the little door real doll furniture she breathed and a couch it's big enough for me and i can put all my dolls to sleep on it and a stove oh oh you can cook on it will you make pancakes for me every day lillian promised when she had looked for her fill he led her back along the flower-bordered path to the big house you do so many nice things, Lillian cried, her eyes shining. You're always giving me presents, and Julie and Alfred and Gus, too, of course. Ponies, Kitty is my favorite. I'll never let her die, and ice cream parties and trips to the theater, and you tell us stories. Baby, would you tell me another story right now? Let's go up on the porch, and you tell me about when you were a little boy in Germany. They settled themselves on the wide veranda, and Lillian gave a wriggle of contentment. She was really the luckiest little girl in the country, she thought. With Grandfather like Favy and Uncle Samuel, who came to visit and brought trunks of full of books and read to them, with her gentle father, who did so many kind things too, and her beautiful mother, who took her to concerts and plays in the opera, and to hear great speakers, as well as for rides in carriages. Now that you have a dollhouse, Fabi was saying, I have another idea. What is it? Tell me, tell me. Not yet, he smiled, teasing her. I must work it out. But it will come soon. I think you will like the idea. It wasn't too long before she found out what it was to be, a bowling alley under the arbor. A bowling alley of their very own, Favy had thought a way to make the balls come back to the bowler, and all the neighborhood children came to play with her and her sister and brothers. One day, however, the ball bounced out of the through and hit Lillian on the head. Favy was distracted. He was afraid she had been badly injured and would not forgive himself. Even when the doctor said she was not seriously harmed, he took her on his lap and told her stories to make her forget, and promised her a little pony. That was why, in later years, Lillian Wald would say that she was a spoiled child, but it was a happy household, and the happy things that took place in her childhood helped form her understanding and sympathetic character. She knew what it meant to be joyous and privileged, and she wanted that for other people. She had been born in Cincinnati, but her father's business took him to Rochester, New York, and it was there that most of her childhood and young womanhood were spent. She was ready for Vassar at sixteen, but the president of the college thought she would wait another year before entering because she was so young. She had been to private schools, and she was not sure what she wanted to do, but she knew that she wanted to do something while she waited to go to college.
Life wasn't all parties and dancing and happy social soirees. But what could she do? Lillian's older sister, Julia, got married in the meantime and was expecting a baby. Lillian went to visit her and met her sister's nurse, a young woman who had studied at Bellevue. Lillian had never talked to a nurse before and was fascinated by the story of her training and experience that the young woman told. It opened up a whole new world to her, a world she was determined to enter. Her family tried to change her mind. It would mean hardship and discipline, and no one had tried to discipline Lillian before. She was gentle and sweet, but she was firm. She was going to be a nurse, and her family gave in, as they always had. She chose the New York Hospital for her training. Miss Irene Sutliff, who became famous herself, was in charge, and showed the young, eager-eyed woman through. Lillian was horrified to see a young boy's leg suspended from an apparatus, feeling sure he must be in dreadful pain. Not at all, said Miss Sutliff. He's the hero of the ward, and if you come in, you and he will have great fun together. Hospital life was new and strange, and there were more rules and regulations in one day than she had met with in her entire life. One night, soon after her arrival, she was sent to the basement on an errand and heard shrieks coming from the cell. She peered in and saw an old man with wild eyes. "'Nobody's given me anything to eat,' he cried. When she asked what was the matter, "'I'm starving!' Lillian thought that was dreadful and rushed to find someone in authority. But no one was in, and she told the elevator boy her trouble. He said that the nurse from the diet kitchen left the key with him when she went away, and he handed it over to her. Help yourself, he said. She did, and brought the man in the cell all kinds of delicacies that she found in the refrigerator reserved for special patients. Next morning she went to Miss Sutliff and said heatedly that it was a shame any patient in the hospital had to starve. Miss Sutliff was a wise and understanding woman. Instead of scolding the young student nurse, she said, It was irregular, Miss Wald. He was drunk and unconscious when he was brought in and could not be fed at the time. You should have asked permission to go to the diet kitchen, but personally I am glad you fed the old gentleman. Lillian Wald found it hard to go into the operating room, but here, too, Miss Sutliff was wise. When one of Lillian's patients was due for an operation, her superior said, If you went with her, I think she would be happier. That made a difference. It didn't help to feel pity and then shrink away. The pity you felt mattered only if you did something about it. She could go to the operating room because her patient needed her. Her nurse's training was only 18 months long, and after that she became a nurse at the juvenile asylum. But she saw so much that made her unhappy there that she left after a year. This was not the place for her, and she felt she could do more for children some other way. She did not know enough yet. She would study to be a doctor. She went to the Women's Medical College. There were very few women doctors. It was only forty years since Elizabeth Blackwell had blazed the way by receiving the first medical degree given a woman. 
Lillian studied hard. She learned to face pain and disease, all the unpleasant things that can happen to people. One evening, she was asked to go down to the college settlement on Henry Street to show a group of women how to do home nursing. This was part of her training. She had never been in the poor section of the city. In the midst of her demonstration showing how to fold a sheet, a child rushed in, asked for help for her mother, who was desperately ill. Lillian followed her through the dark streets and up the rotting stairway to the dank two rooms where seven people were living. What she found there opened her eyes to conditions which she had only vaguely heard about. While she bathed the sick woman and gave her comfort and calmed the weeping child, her eyes took in the pitiful condition, and her heart cried out to do something about them. This was not just one case in a great city. This was one case with thousands like it. There were so many unfortunate people in the city who needed help. Her hospital training and her training to be a doctor made her aware of that. But she could not wait to become a doctor. She must begin at once. She would bring nursing right to the homes that needed it. When she went down the stairway in the early morning, her mind was made up. She knew what her life work was to be. Her first fellow worker was a friend, Mary Brewster, who had also graduated from New York Hospital as a nurse. They found a small apartment on Jefferson Street, up five flights, but it had a bathroom, and let it be known in the neighborhood that they were there to help. At first the calls were slow in coming. People were distrustful. They could not believe that these young women really meant what they said. Lillian Wald and her friends waited. They were good neighbors and friendly and interested. Finally, an elderly man came to see them. I came up here because they said here were some ladies who would listen, he said. And that was the beginning, for they not only listened, they helped. It was a year when there was a great depression thousands were out of work and they had little money little food and illness was everywhere the two nurses found children with eye disease and vermin bites they found typhoid and pneumonia there were crippled children and her mother living on dry crusts of bread there was a family which had only ten dollars a month six of those dollars were paid for rent they slept wrote Miss Wald in one of her endless reports on rags in an unlighted room. There were children who had no shoes and could not go to the country, and others so naked they had to be clothed before they could be sent to a sanitarium. Newspapers offered tickets for free ice at ice depots and tickets for fresh air excursions, and the two nurses gave these away. They enlisted the help of hospitals and various charities, but there was never enough. Lillian Wald never called these people the poor. She had too great sympathy for that. She said they were the unfortunates, and they must be helped. Some who needed help would not take it. She told of one proud young Russian who refused money until she got a friend of hers to ask him to tutor her son so that he could be paid. Wherever they went, they saw things that needed to be done and needed to be changed. 
two years before the health commissioner of New York launched his own anti-tuberculosis campaign, Lillian Wald had a long list of patients for the Board of Health to take on. She tried not only to nurse the sick, but the doctors who made them sick, and what could be done to prevent it. On less than a hundred dollars a month, which came out of her own, and Miss Brewster's private income, she managed to buy eggs and milk prescriptions, train fare for a boy to go to Saranac, money to fix someone's spectacles, money for rent. Take care of people in their own homes were really the beginning of the Visiting Nurses Association, which spread all over the world. Other things that Lillian Wald did were also the beginning of other reforms. When she found a grocery store, for instance, that was not clean, she would ask the grocer to put netting over the cheese and fruit. When she treated children for scalp ailments, she started the idea of having school nurses. When she discovered that many of the immigrants' mothers did not know how to cook or serve American foods, she gave lessons in preparing simple dishes that were not expensive and were nourishing for children. She used tact and firmness to get people over their fear of doctors and hospitals. She kept in touch with her patients after they were well and tried to see that they had work and proper living conditions. When things were wrong or she found bad practices, she could be stern. The people began to call her, she who must be obeyed. And one Chinese man, knowing of her many good deeds, said to her, Heavenly Lady Number One. Little by little, the neighbors of their friends came to rely on her and Miss Brewster. The work grew. Soon there were four nurses instead of two. People brought their problems to her, or sometimes they just came to chat or for a visit. They brought her little gifts to show their appreciation, and she treasured those. After a time, there wasn't room in the apartment. They had so many friends, so many patients, so many others needing help, and so many wanting to visit that they had to have a bigger place. Miss Wald found a solid three-story house that a friend of hers said seemed to have an open and serene expression and to be utterly charming. They bought it. It had a little garden at the rear, and this was the beginning of the Henry Street Settlement. It was surprising how much happened in that one house. In the course of 250 nurses would go in a single day to visit 1,300 patients and care for people of 25 different nationalities. These young women in blue, whom Miss Wald had so carefully chosen, made their countless rounds among the people who were ill but who would never have gone to a hospital. Sometimes the nurses had a hard time finding the address of the ill person. Even the policeman on the beat was not sure. The nurses did as much work as several hospitals, and no call, whether it came by mail or telephone or messenger, was ever refused. The nurses had the spirit of an army, and nothing diverted them. On salaries of $30 a week or less, some were volunteers and accepted no salary at all. They did wonderful work. Nor was their work 
over when they had cared for the sick. They came back to the settlement house, and as often as not conducted classes in nursing care, hygiene, cooking, or English. They were devoted young women, always inspired by the example of Lillian Wald and encouraged by her appreciation and enthusiasm. Classes were held in all kinds of subjects. There were recreation rooms for children, adults, and there was a constant stream of people coming for advice and help. And in the heart of the house, which was Miss Wald's office, new ideas sprang to life and were put into action. Lillian Wald had a constant concern for children and their welfare, and for years she had been distressed by child labor. So back then, it was legal for children to work. And sometimes they wouldn't go to school. They would just go and work all day in factories. And they were very poor. They were not paid well at all. And so there was a law that changed that, that said that you could not work until you were of a, of a certain age. More than that, as she often pointed out, no one seemed to know or care how many children were born and died, how many were in jails or almshouses. One morning she decided to act. The federal government must become concerned about the children of the United States. It took her years to get action, but she did not give up until she had written and spoken and lectured and worked, had brought pressure to bear in high places, and had the aid of influential people. In due course the Children's Bureau was formed, an agency to take care of all those problems concerned children. Everyone wanted Lillian Wall to be its head, but she refused. Now that it was a fact, she had other work to do. She was always busy, but never too busy to listen to the story of someone in trouble, someone needing help or advice. She made the work of the Henry Street Settlement known far and wide, so that money came in for at least some of the things she had always wanted to do. There were all kinds of clubs— formed at Henry Street for boys and girls, but Miss Wald's favorite was the American Horse Club, which was the very first one. It was made up of boys who had not been friends of the settlement at first and whom she had had to win over. These boys, who had made nuisances of themselves when the settlement first came to Henry Street, grew to be its most loyal supporters. When a campaign for a new club building with gymnasium, library, reading room, game rooms, and meeting room were started, some of the club members who were employed walked to their work so that they could give their car fare to the fund. Many of these boys later had fine careers, or fought for their country, or were successful businessmen, and many of them came back to tell her of their success and to help her in her work. She liked the clubs to manage themselves as freely as possible. Only once did she interfere, and that was when a group decided not to accept a boy who wanted to come in just because he was Chinese. She told them that if they didn't admit him, they could not meet at the settlement. And then she invited a Chinese woman doctor who spoke English fluently to come and give a talk about her native country. The club members had never realized what a wonderful culture other nations had, and the attractive Chinese doctor impressed them. They changed their minds, 
and the boy who was Chinese eventually became one of the most popular members. It was one of Lillian Ward's most cherished victories. She liked to tell stories on herself, and they always proved a point to her listeners. One time she recalled when she was entering some important visitors, and delegation of fish peddlers called on her to ask her help. She wanted to know if her visitors could listen in, but they said no. They wouldn't know what we were talking about, the man said, but you would. Why, you even like a fish peddler. She felt like all people, whatever their work or their situation in life, if they had problems or needed help, that was the secret of her success. If boys got into trouble, as they did with neighbors or city policemen, and were brought to court, Miss Wald was their friend. If necessary, she talked to them or found work for them. She gave them discipline, but she also gave them affection and understanding, and they straightened out. They had to, for she expected it of them. She never gave up a boy in trouble. Lillian Wald brought musicians, speakers, dancers, and singers to the house so that her neighbors could enjoy them. She opened doors to worlds of art and music that had been closed till then. She broadened her horizons, made them aware of other fields. Festivals and holidays were celebrated with pageant and song, and the neighbors were always part of it. Life grew richer because of her and her determination that their days should not have only work and worry. Out of this grew the Henry Street Playhouse, which some of her wealthy friends made possible. Now they could put on plays and pantomimes and pageants for adults and children. Actors famous the world over played at Henry Street. Concert artists sang for them. The settlement house people were enriched and uplifted. A never-ending stream of good things came out of Henry Street. Lillian Wald was vitally concerned with improving children's conditions. New housing and sanitation, suffrage, sweatshops. As a spoiled child, she knew how to wind her family around her finger, and as a woman, she knew how to present her facts and figures to people in high places and make them see what needed to be done, with new laws or with money. Because of her great heart and her fine mind, she brought health and happiness to thousands of people. She bet bettered the living conditions of millions. She fought for justice wherever was needed. Her life was full to overflowing, yet she always had time for friends, and her friends ranged from the Prime Minister of England and his daughter to the janitress of an apartment house, from a peddler on the street corner to one of the wealthiest men in New York City. The bigger the settlement house grew, the more work she had, and the more work she had, the more she undertook. When doctors finally told her that she must rest, she found it very hard, but she did retire to a lovely old house she had bought in Cincinnati called House on the Pond. There she watched the changing seasons, the birds in her garden, their people came to see her. The great and the near great, Jane Addams of Full House and Mrs. Roosevelt, some of her American hero boys, and the young women on the nursing staff. There she wrote the plan what she would do when she was well, for there was still so much to do. 
When she died, more than three thousand people came to the Henry Street house that had been her home for forty years. Over thousand jammed Carnegie Hall, where a memorial service was held. Everyone mourned her, the famous men, the women, whose hearts and pocketbooks had opened to her needs, the boy who walked for miles to save a two-cent stamp, the woman who had found a new hope because of Lillian Wall's advice, children who were plump and rosy now after having had tuberculosis, the corner greengrocer, the uptown matron. All came to pay her honor, knowing that although she was dead, she would live forever in the hearts of those she had loved and loved her, and that the work she had begun would never die.